Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you're listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jackson T. Reinhardt, and today I am pleased to be with Daniel G. Hummel, historian of U.S. religion and uh, employee of the Upper House, a Christian Studies Center located on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison, to talk about his new book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation, published by Erdman's 2023. In the Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, Daniel G. Hummel illuminates how dispensationalism, despite often being dismissed as a fringe end times theory, shaped Anglo-American evangelicalism in the larger American cultural imagination. Hummel locates dispensationalism's origin in the writing of 19th century Protestant John Nelson Darby, who established many of the hallmarks of the movement, such as premillennialism and the belief in the rapture. Though it consistently faced criticism, dispensationalism held populist and briefly scholarly appeal, visible in everywhere from turn-of-the-century revivalism to apocalyptic bestsellers of the 1970s to current internet conspiracy theories. Measured in Arenic, Hummel objectively evaluates evangelicalism's most resilient and contentious popular theology as the comprehensive, as the first comprehensive cultural history of its kind. The rise and fall of dispensationalism is a must-read for students and scholars of American religion. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I found the book to be. Uh, absolutely exhilarating, which is not something you hear about cultural or intellectual histories of this kind, but it it truly was the case. Uh, So before we get into the the content of this great book, tell us a little bit about your academic background and what led to the writing and publication of The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. Sure. Uh, So I am trained as an intellectual historian. I got my PhD in uh, American history, American intellectual history here at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I was trained by a a historian named Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen, who always encouraged me to uh, think about intellectual history um, in relationship to other fields as well, particularly cultural and religious history. And so um, some of the style of the book, the interest in both uh, uh, sort of ideas and politics, and then the institutions that mediate those things um, comes out of my training. Um, I, I'm also a diplomatic historian. That's the other sort of side of my uh, my uh, history training. And so my first book was on Christian Zionism. So a, a, a movement that uh, is largely made up of evangelical Christians who have organized to support the state of Israel. And the theology of dispensationalism underlies a lot of that uh, that movement. Not all of it, but but a large part of it. So I developed a number of questions, of intellectual questions, that came out of that first book that focused around uh, less around the politics of Israel and more around the uh, development of the theology underlying the movement and particularly dispensationalism. And so that got me interested in in reading around the history of dispensationalism 
and particularly trying to understand where it came from and how it developed. And I, uh, there, there's been a lot of really good research in recent decades on topics like fundamentalism and apocalypticism and evangelicalism, very closely related topics. But um, it was a surprise to me to realize that no one had really written a survey of dispensationalism for decades, uh, going back even to the uh, 1960s was really the last uh, survey of dispensationalism. There have been some later work by scholars like Paul Boyer on the cultural resonance of apocalyptic theology that gets because it's close. But I thought that it was it was time for an updated survey, uh, integrating all the great scholarship that had come come about since the 1960s. And so that really uh, put me on the path to write this book. Okay, so Daniel, going into the content of the book, tell us, you know, a little bit about what dispensationalism is. This is a, a loaded term. This is a term that has a variety of meanings, both for its opponents and for its supporters. In fact, you say it was defined or at least first coined by a, a defector of the movement. And then tell us a little bit about the, how this term dispensationalism fits within the broader understanding of Christian premillennialism. Great. Yeah. Um, so the term dispensationalism, I, I would guess most uh, practicing Christians don't recognize that term. It It's a very, uh, you know, it's a technical theological term to define a certain system of theology that um, uh, has a certain history and then a certain set of teachings. So the I'll, I'll get to the teachings first. So it, 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 it tends to be a, a, a system of theology that's embraced by conservative white evangelicalism and fundamentalism. And, uh, and it's really distinctive around uh, three areas. So it has a distinctive way of understanding uh, the relationship of uh, Israel to the church. These are, these are theological terms. But um, when, when dispensationalists read the Bible, they understand that there are basically two chosen peoples of God, um, which is different than most Christians. And, and those chosen peoples are the people of Israel and then the people of the church or the Gentile uh, church. And um, this, is, this distinguishes dispensationalists from most Christians who tend to see a continuity between ancient Israel and the modern day church. And dispensationalists uh, sort of divide those and keep those separate. This leads to, among other things, their interest in the modern state of Israel as sort of a, a modern day embodiment of one of God's two chosen peoples. Um, another part of dispensationalism that is unique is its end times teaching. So it, we call that eschatology in the theological realm, and that is its understanding of sort of the end of, of all things and the second coming of Jesus. Dispensationalists have a very, uh, you could say, unique way of reading the end times and actually a very uh, detailed understanding of what's going to happen at the end. And this comes out of their broader system and the way they read particularly prophetic parts of the Bible, uh, passages in Revelation and Daniel and uh, some of the prophetic uh, passages in the Gospels. And this, uh, this teaching of eschatology starts with um, probably the most famous uh, distinctive of dispensationalism, which is the teaching of the any moment rapture. So this idea that at any moment, uh, all true believers, all, all, all true Christians will suddenly be disappeared and will be will will be in the presence of Jesus in heaven and that will kick off a, a, a an end times timeline that culminates in the second coming of Jesus and the establishment of the millennial kingdom 
with Jesus. And uh, between the rapture and the establishment of the kingdom, there will be a host of uh, horrible events that will happen, including the rise of the Antichrist, uh, the mark of the beast. Um, th- these are these are phrases that come out of passages of Revelation in particular. Um, but they have, in, at least in American culture, they've largely taken on dispensationalist meaning. So the idea that the Antichrist is a, a an actual individual person uh, who will somehow take control of the globe in some type of one world government and the mark of the beast being this this literal mark that people will have to wear or, or be tattooed with or something in order to function in this uh, dictatorship that's run by the Antichrist. Um, you know, th- there have been there's long traditions of interpreting these these uh, concepts or these phrases in Christian history. For most Americans, what they'll think about is a pretty literalistic or or sort of real something that you could a journalist could document or something like that. Um, and that, that that's a product of the pervasiveness of dispensational interpretations of these types of um, end time scenarios. And so this puts uh, dispensationalism within the premillennialist camp of uh, Christian theology, which is the the tradition that sees um, uh, Jesus returning to establish the millennium. So pre-millennium is, is when Jesus returns. And this contrasts with post-millennialism, uh, which was the, the dominant popular uh, eschatological tradition in American evangelicalism up to the 20th century, which saw that actually the United States and the reform movements um, that, that were enacted by Christians would actually be, build up to the millennium, uh, that, that Jesus would come at the end of a, a sort of era of peace um, and then there's a there's a third tradition which is actually quite popular, which is amillennialism, which is which is to reject the idea that there will be a literal millennium, a literal thousand years, um, and and you find that view among um, many uh, Calvinists and and others who um, who reject sort of the the, the literalism uh, that that others have read into the millennium, um, and so and then the the third just aspect of dispensationalism that's that's pretty unique is its hermeneutic for reading the Bible. So uh, dispensationalists tend to be champions of a plain or literal interpretation of the Bible, meaning that uh, they reject, they tend to reject as much as they can allegorical or symbolical readings of the Bible, and they tend to be defenders of biblical inerrancy or the idea that there are no errors in the Bible at all. And they see that inerrancy as as being closely linked to uh, literalism. So uh, dispensationalists have been champions of things like young earth creationism, the idea that you must read Genesis 1 uh, as literally as possible, meaning a day is a 24-hour cycle around around the earth. And and they've also championed reading prophecy uh, literally in the sense, not, not in a total literal sense. So like when the dragon is, is rising up out of the ocean, they don't uh, necessarily teach that a literal biological dragon is going to rise up out of the ocean. Uh, but they do teach that um, the dragon is representative of observable historical developments that will happen. Uh, and that like a journalist or a video camera could document uh, the fulfillment of these prophecies in a way that they would say, in the same way that prophecies in the Old Testament prophesied Jesus's uh, incarnation on earth, uh, in sort of a historical way, uh, they are looking for prophecies to be fulfilled in that way as well, which leads to the type of speculative uh, practices that many dispensationalists are known for in pop culture uh, around sort of trying to read uh, the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other uh, type uh, type practices that comes out of this tendency toward a literalistic reading of, of the Bible. Well, thank you for explicating dispensationalism more than just an eschatological system, which it seems that 
popular and scholarly publications zero in on. And in fact, no, there's actually kind of broader theological and social implications of this of this system. So tell us a little bit about the emergence of what you call up until the 1920s, new premillennialism in Ireland and in the, in the United Kingdom, but more specifically, how this theological system came to the United States and for what purpose did people in the United States in the mid-19th century use it for? Yeah, and, and that's what was so interesting to me about the the early part of this story is trying to understand why things happened when they did, right? So that's, that's something the historians tend to be interested in. So uh, I was interested in why these types of teachings that we've just been talking about became, uh, started to be received more warmly in the night in the 1860s and 1870s. So the, the story starts uh, with John Nelson Darby, who is an Anglo-Irish um, disaffected uh, Anglican priest um, and Darby did not necessarily originate all of the teachings that that become dispensationalism, but he 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 combined them in a new way, and so he combined this idea of Israel and the church being separate. He combined it, he added to that um, a sense of a literalistic reading of the Bible. One thing that Darby added that was a little different than anyone else who had been talking about these things before was um, Darby was a separatist, a very strong separatist from the Anglican Church. He ended up founding the Plymouth Brethren, who um, you know really are, are punch above their weight in terms of numbers in in the uh, you could say Anglo-American religious history. They're found all over the place. Um, you, very small sect, but but one that had very distinctive ideas. Darby basically inter- has an interpretation of the Anglican Church coming out of his early 20s work as a priest that the church was hopelessly compromised by being part of the British Empire, by basically forwarding imperial interests. And he saw this particularly in Ireland and the way that the Church of Ireland was, uh, in, in his view, not sufficiently anti-Catholic enough. And, and he wanted, he wanted uh, sort of seeing Catholicism as heretical. He wanted to um, be more aggressive in converting Catholics to Anglicanism. And he, he, he becomes disaffected not just with the Church of, of, of Ireland, but the whole Anglican Church and ultimately all state churches. And he, he basically makes an argument that the church should be entirely separate from all worldly powers. And, um, and so this really sets him on a road that makes him develop this system of theology that we've just talked about. Um, and so Dar- Darby is a, a very interesting person. A lot's been written about him. I know there's actually active um, biographies of him being, being written right now. Um, and, and he's definitely an important figure for the founding of dispensationalism. But I wanted to make sure to not uh, commit some type of um, simplistic uh, error by just tracing a straight line from Darby to today and saying basically what happened is, you know, people, if, all you need to do is read Darby and you'll sort of understand dispensationalism. And, and actually what's interesting is Darby was a, a charismatic leader. He's someone who had a following. Uh, he was not a great communicator. He, he was very dense in his writing. It was not accessible to most people. He did not like speaking in front of large crowds. He hated revivalism, which uh, became a major uh, engine for spreading his teachings. And so I was really interested in the group around Darby, other brethren in this sort of first generation of, of brethren, who were more like popularizers. They, they took his ideas and, uh, and turned them into much more digestible, much more interesting to the lay, um, you know, lay Christian um, format. 
and um, and particularly how uh, many of those popularizers ended up seeing the United States as a very important uh, field for gathering followers. And Darby Darby was totally tuned into this. He ended up spending seven years in the United States um, in the 1860s and 1870s. His first visit was in early 1862. Uh, or sorry, late 1862, and that was actually to Canada. And he ended up visiting uh, the U.S. for the first time in early 1863. And so this is at the middle of the Civil War. He's, he's this is his first introduction to the United States. But there were a number of popularizers around Darby who um, took some of his ideas, including his, uh, his separatist teachings, including the rapture, including uh, the first prophecy chart, which becomes a major part of the dispensationalist sort of cultural footprint or these really intricate, long prophecy charts. The first one of those is not developed by Darby, but one of his followers named Charles Stanley, who's looking for a way that the story is that Stanley's like preaching at a at basically at a restaurant. And he, he, he ends up drawing on a on a on a door, um, the first prophecy chart to try to explain to this group of lay, lay people sort of what's the timeline um, in, in this system. And so um, so many of the popularizers are actually much more important to the story of how dispensationalism travels to the U.S. And the key thing here is that popularizers do try to faithfully uh, represent Darby's ideas, but they also change them. They, they simplify them. They use them to different arguments than Darby would. And um, and so that's how uh, that's at least the, the process through which many of Darby's teachings reached the U.S. Now, the interesting thing about 1863 and this being sort of the first part, uh, the first time when there's actually receptivity to Darby's ideas is that this is in the middle of the Civil War and the people in the U.S. who are most receptive to Darby's ideas, at least the ones who become champions of his ideas in the 1870s, tend to be uh, pastors in the border states, in the states that are really struggling um, to, at least people within those states, are struggling to navigate the, the, the war, and particularly states that are officially northern in their allegiance, but have very strong southern sympathies among the population. And so I zero in particularly on a, a pastor in St. Louis named James Brooks, who becomes the Godfather of premillennial of new premillennialism in the U.S. from the 1870s to the 1890s, and he becomes newly receptive to Darby's teachings after the Civil War because he likes the teaching of the church being entirely otherworldly, entirely separate from politics. And Brooks is someone who's looking to get out of basically having to adjudicate Reconstruction in St. Louis in the 1860s and 1870s. And so one of the one of the things that appeals to him is that Darby's teachings give him a way to frame his ministry in a way that does not need to address um, racial justice issues, the reconstruction issues in in the in the moment, and so I see this happening in a, in, a, in a few different areas across the border state region, and what really um, what really kicks off a more broad engagement with these ideas is that uh, Dwight Moody picks them up, and Dwight Moody is a friend of James Brooks, so there's a transmission line there, and Moody is a Northerner. He he fought or he was on the Union side, and he was a chaplain for the Union, um, but Moody was really interested in the post uh, Civil War period in what uh, others other scholars have called sectional reconciliation, reconciling particularly whites in the North and the South to band together to uh, engage in global missions. Uh, and that is what Moody's main goal in life was, was to develop a global missions project. Um, and, and Moody adopts 
Darby's teachings, certain certain parts of Darby's teachings that help him make that case. And the the key one here is is this idea that um, missions is the primary goal of the Christian life of the of the church, and that um, it's something like. Uh, sectional reconciliation or adjudicating the guilt of the civil war is something that detracts from that mission and is is outside the bounds of what the church is called to do. So there is a, what I was interested in was, was understanding why this would be appealing to people in the 1860s and 70s. And the other sort of smaller question maybe was why there were not many African-American dispensationalists. There's, there's a lot of ways that African-American Christianity would be compatible with dispensationalism on a lot of other theology. And in fact, there are many premillennialists who are African-American. Um, but there are very, very few dispensationalists who are. And one of the keys, I think, is understanding that the way this theology functioned in late 19th century American Christianity was as a theology that allowed white Northerners and white Southerners to move beyond any type of race talk and really allowed um, or facilitated Northern evangelicals uh, for from critiquing Southern evangelicals around race issues. Uh, the, the, it was muted, and any type of critique was framed as a detraction from global missions uh, and, and thus uh, sort of uh, harmful to the cause. And dispensationalist theology is sort of at the bedrock of this dynamic. It, it's fascinating. Uh, you bring up in the last portion about the, the dearth of African-American dispensationalists because there's internally no missional movement for this theology, but globally there is. And, and, and when I think of dispensationalists who aren't white, first goes to uh, Watchman Nee and his movement out of China. So it's fascinating that this movement was so insular in white America, but globally it was able to spread uh, much further. And so I, I guess I want to talk more about, as a Chicago native, Moody. And what you you call it the premillennial complex? In what sense did Moody lay the foundation for the spread and diffusion of premillennial ideas and praxis in the you know turn of the twentieth century, late nineteenth century? Yeah, yeah. Moody's so important. He he. Uh, I, I adopt the term from another historian, Michael Hamilton, to even just call the whole era the Moody movement. I mean, it, it's it it's really important. It's much like Billy Graham functioned uh, a couple generations later. That almost anyone in white evangelicalism in the 1870s through 1890s had some was in the orbit of, of Dwight Moody. And really Moody's at the heart and the Moody movement is at the heart of particularly three types of institutions that are built up and that's what I call the premillennial complex that all have premillennial and particularly new premillennial, the sort of dispensationalist um, theology undergirding it and actually rationalizing it. So one is the Bible Institute movement and Moody Bible Institute is probably the most famous of the Bible Institutes, but there are dozens of them across the country. Uh, these were these were a, basically a novel education uh, form in the 1870s, 1880s, adopted some from Europe, but really um, given life in the United States in order to train missionaries as quickly as possible. So they often had two year terms, uh, two year degrees, I guess you could say. Um, they often allowed uh, women and men in because the, the goal was not to create pastors or or um, 
or anything more than missionaries. And, and it, this was one area where women were encouraged to um, co-labor with men was in, was on the mission field. Um, and so Bible institutes become a major engine for promoting dispensationalist teachings, for training thousands of people in dispensationalism. And of course, they're now sort of the backbone of the Christian college world. Uh, many of them still exist. They've, they've moved far beyond their dispensationalist roots, which is part of the uh, latter half of the story. Um, but they were founded in this moment of, of, of dispensationalist a- uh, uh, activism and educational activism. Um, a, a second uh, uh, sort of institution type that Moody was also very involved in is the Bible conference movement. And for many people today, if you're not a historian that, that can feel uh, it, it's not easy to grasp exactly why Bible conferences are so important, but for the, for the 19th century and for the early 20th century, this was one of the primary ways people gathered to talk about and interpret the Bible together. These were conferences that would be up to a week long, maybe even longer where there would be it's really intense teaching during that time, a lot of fellowship and prayer and other things, but really you were gathering to, to learn about um, how to interpret the Bible together. And uh, dispensationalists were, or, or new premillennialists before they were called dispensationalists, uh, were, were quite involved in the Bible conference movement. Maybe the most famous is the Niagara Bible Conference, which uh, actually met in Canada for many years, but also met around the country, where uh, sort of leading pastors from around uh, the North in particular, uh, the Midwest area would gather to interpret the Bible together and would sort of reinforce each other on these core doctrines um, that that otherwise they would only be sort of reading each other's magazines and stuff. But this was the time to meet. There are still Bible conferences around today. It's a much smaller movement uh, than it was, and it tends to be now on the what we call the more independent fundamentalist side. It's not. It doesn't tend to be um, central, though. There are many conferences that evangelical Christians attend today that have. Uh, very similar practices uh, that Bible conferences did a uh, hundred, a hundred years ago, and then the third institution, uh, which gets to your point about Watchman Nee, uh, is the 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 just explosion of um, missions agencies, global missions agencies in the nineteenth, late nineteenth, early twentieth century. Many of them. Uh, founded by Moody uh, lieutenants, people in the Moody movement. And these were part part of the core motivation of dispensationalists is that um, time is short and the gospel needs to be spread. And, and this was this was what oriented the Bible Institutes as well. And so missions agencies uh, crop up all over the place in the late 19th century. And many of them are geared toward uh, quickly spreading the word as fast as possible using the latest type of media, the, la- the latest uh, type of um, technology to spread the word. And this is where dispensationalism goes global in a sense. There are um, if, if you're if you found a seminar if you found a missions agency you're going to sort of organize it based on your theological understanding of the world and so many of these missions agencies promote dispensationalist teachings they might not call it that they might just um, just present it as the the natural way to read the Bible or something like that um, but uh, you know key key lieutenants of, of Moody people like Cyrus Schofield who ends up developing the Schofield Bible uh, found Central American missions uh, that's the name of his agency in the 18 1890- 90s in order to fund missionaries to go down to Central America and promote um, his reading. So Watchman Nee is an interesting example in China. Um, the Schofield notes are quickly translated into China, into Chinese in the 1910s and 1920s in order for them to f- be facilitated in 
American missions in China. So that happens all over the globe. And that's a key way that these ideas spread uh, as well. So those are the three types of institutions that I, I try to bundle up into a complex, a sort of, uh, say, churning almost engine that by the early 20th century is really the backbone of why American evangelicalism. This is where a lot of the activity, outside the churches themselves, this is where a lot of the activity is happening. And it's all more or less influenced by this particular theology um, underneath each of those institutions. Uh, when, when I was going to college in California, one of the big Christian colleges down there was Biola, which you mentioned as a kind of dispensational epicenter at the time. And they have a Honors College, a kind of great book society called the Torrey Honors College. And, I, and I, as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, what would R.A. Torrey think that many of his students under his name in this Honors College are reading Homer and Plato and kind of not at all looking through their Schofield Bible? And I want to talk about the Schofield Reference Bible, which is not the Ur text, but an important text in this movement. Uh, one of the, uh, Schofield is one of the many lawyers who pop up in this book, which is kind of an interesting, maybe sub uh, question. But anywho, how important is this text, this reference Bible, to dispensationalism academically and publicly in the 20th century? Yeah, that, that's great. And yeah, lawyers and engineers, many, many dispensationalists are trained as lawyers or engineers in this period. I think there's something about the, uh, th there's a great book a few years ago called Dispensational Modernism uh, by Brendan Peach, uh, which makes the case that we should, and I, I totally buy this, that we should interpret dispensationalism not as some anti-modern or or antiquated uh, theology, but that is hyper-modern. It, it's, it's a response in the 19th century to um, a lot of the trends of, of modernity, you could call it. But one of them being this, this desire to catalog and organize and be very precise about interpretation. And so that, that attracts lawyers and engineers, among, among others. And so, um, yes, yeah, Schofield was a lawyer. Darby was trained as a lawyer as well. Um, yeah, that's right. Morrow was, was also a lawyer. Um, that what the, the most famous, uh, chartist or the person who made charts was Clarence Larkin. You can look up Larkin charts online. Oh, and yeah. They're all, oh yeah. They're I know. And Larkin was an engineer, um, by training. And if you look at those charts and you sort of just make them a little blurry, maybe squint your eyes a bit. Um, they look like, uh, little machines or something. I mean, they're, they're, they're all, all, all the lines are straight and they're, they almost look like a chemistry set or something. There's all these little uh, globes and stuff in them. And so there's definitely an aesthetic to this that that gives an insight into sort of the, the way that dispensationists understood themselves to be modern or, or really um, engaging with um, modern thought, not just anti-modern or opposed to modern thought. Um, but Schofield, uh, Schofield has a direct line, uh, uh, sort of genealogy to Darby. So Schofield learned under James Brooks, that famous St. Louis pastor. Um, Schofield has a very uh, interesting, complicated past. He was an ex-Confederate soldier. He was a divorcee. He... Um, he was an alcoholic for a time, but he ultimately uh, uh, credits his uh, accomplishments to his conversion to Christianity and particularly this this conservative uh, dispensationalist type Christianity. And Schofield does not have a lot of, of training, but he's a self-taught 
person who becomes very good at uh, systematizing and explaining in very common language the complicated theology that he that he learned. And so uh, he, he ultimately gets funding in the early 20th century from a number of Plymouth Brethren and conservative evangelical businessmen to develop a reference Bible, to a Bible that would um, have the text of the Bible at the top and then at the bottom notes to explain the text. Um, and he he ultimately uh, develops what's called the Schofield Reference Bible. In a, I tell the story of in the interesting way, Oxford University Press actually publishes the Bible, which is a major coup, and still um, does. Really giving it, it still does. It still does. And there, are, uh, the press has never. Uh, clarified this, but um, a lot of the people I've talked to about this assume that this is the best-selling book in Oxford Press's history, um, by far, but far and away, which I don't think the press would would want to publicize that much. It's not sort of their their normal uh, line, but um, but it really gives a lot of credibility to Schofield as well, because he's publishing with a major, a major press. But um, the Bible is originally published in 1909, and I would say, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the notes would be unremarkable to any conservative evangelical at that time. They, they, there's not a ton of um, I, ways to identify exactly what Schofield's doing differently, but that other 10% of notes, uh, and there are a lot of notes, there are thousands of notes, so that it, 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 it's a big chunk of the notes, um, present this very distinct dispensationalist understanding of, of history, of how to read the Bible, of prophecy. I should mention, I didn't even mention this when defining dispensationalism. The term itself, it refers to the way that dispensationalists divide up historical time into distinct dispensations, um, a dispensation being an economy of God's action with humanity. And so the idea is that God acts differently in different eras uh, with humanity and has different covenants and things with humanity. And so that is distinct. And that, that's one of the things the rapture and the other, these other teachings are distinct. And those are also footnoted for, for Schofield. And he doesn't sort of say which of the things are unique and which aren't. It's all presented as this is just a, a presentation of evangelical Christianity. So the, the, the notes are very formative for generations of Christians. Um, it, it, sells about a million copies in the first decade. And as you mentioned, it's still selling millions and millions of copies of the Schofield Bible have been sold. It's been uh, updated to, to go along with different translations of the Bible. It was revised in 1967 uh, with sort of updated notes by a lot of uh, scholars at that time who were in the dispensationalist tradition. Um, I really credit it as uh, giving a, a coherence to what before that was a lot of you could say smaller conversations that were in dialogue with each other. The Schofield Bible becomes the standard text. That's what I call it. The standardized way that a dispensationalist culture emerges where people from across the country, across the world can talk to each other about dispensationalism and refer to a shared text. Um, Darby's notes were not going to do that or Darby's uh, writings were not going to do that. They were not um, accessible enough. And the popularizers of Darby never had the ambition to actually uh, create an annotated Bible in the same way. And so um, it really becomes uh, this is this it really becomes the reference point for most dispensationalists after that. And for many people who don't even know what dispensationalism is, um, they are gifted a Schofield Bible when they're young or something like that. And so they just assume this is a a traditional way of reading the Bible. And it's crucial, too, that Schofield's Bible comes out in 1909, and this is at the precipice of the, the fundamentalist movement, the, the modernist fundamentalist controversies, and it becomes one of the, the de facto uh, Bibles of the fundamentalist side of that controversy. And so there, it's tied up into broader signaling about sort of which side of the 
controversy are you on? Um, the Schofield Bible can sort of signal that you're on the conservative side of that controversy. And so it gains added credibility or added symbolism uh, because of the moment it came out of uh, as well. And it also seems to be an inspiration for future dispensational study Bibles. Uh, when I was growing up, we didn't have a Schofield, but we had a Ryrie study Bible, which I think has over a million notes. Even though this figure is controversial in dispensationalism, MacArthur, John MacArthur is a study Bible, which I believe is still kind of semi-dispensational in orientation, his, his first one. Um, so it's interesting that uh, th- this tech, and then there's the new Schofield, that the text, it's it, it set kind of a format for the way in which uh, dispensationalists interacted with the Bible. But but let's go first to, you mentioned at the end of your question uh, answer, fundamentalism and modernism. This is extraordinarily pivotal time in American religious history to say nothing of dispensationalism. How, what was the role of dispensationalism in this controversy? And, and not only uh, how was it used in debates between modernists and fundamentalists, but more importantly, intra-fundamentalist debates that were developing in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, a, a key thing to keep in mind is that not all fundamentalists were dispensationalists. In fact, I, I, we don't know precise numbers, but a majority of the leaders of the fundamentalist movement were not dispensationalists. Certainly people like William Jennings Bryan was not uh, known for the Scopes trial. Um, and so dispensationalists tended to be uh, almost uniformly uh, f- sympathetic with fundamentalism. Uh, and so they they were part of the, the conservative wing of this controversy. Uh, but they were not the dominant leaders of that controversy of that side. And, uh, and they were actually, there was a, there was sort of an uneasy relationship between dispensationalists and other conservative Protestants of the era, people like J. Gresham Machen, who was a very, you know, really important Presbyterian fundamentalist who wrote about, uh, uh, dispensationalists as sort of necessary allies, even though there was a lot of disagreement over particularly the the eschatology part of dispensationalism. And, well, actually, and the dispensationalist part. Um, Macon comes out of a, a covenantalist uh, tradition, a much more reformed tradition. And so um, what's interesting to me and what I track in the book is how even though dispensations didn't make up a lot or the, the totality of the fundamentalist side, there's a lot of talk about dispensationalism by both sides. And particularly the modernists wanted to portray people like Harry, Harry Emerson Fosdick wanted to portray dispens- uh, fundamentalists as entirely dispensationalists. And, and there was a conflation there. And he did that repeatedly. And I, I sort of document that. And so dispensationalism becomes this sort of outsized symbol of the modernist, uh, the, the, the controversy between modernists and fundamentalists. And this is where actually the term comes from. So, so before 1927, there's no real documented usage of the term dispensationalism. It ends up emerging uh, from this uh, fundamentalist lawyer named Philip Morrow, who uh, was at one time uh, sympathetic with dispensationalism, but by the 1920s is much more in that reform camp that Machen was in. And Morrow was very active on anti-evolution uh, campaigns. He was part of the lawyer team at Scopes. And uh, and he's looking around in 1927, very disappointed, uh, dissatisfied with the gains of fundamentalism. And in fact, this is when fundamentalists are sort of escaping or leaving the Presbyterian denomination that Morrow was in. And Mara looks around and he's looking for who to blame within his own ranks, within the fundamentalist world, 
uh, why why have they failed so badly? And he ends up coining the term dispensationalists or dispensationalism to try to identify what he considered a heresy or a modern heresy uh, of of Christians who didn't think about the world enough, who didn't engage with politics enough because they were so otherworldly. And this is uh, this is who Morrow called dispensationalists. And so the term is not one that dispensationalists themselves embraced immediately. It takes about a decade for dispensationalists to, to basically accept the term. But it's so crucial to me that that we're moving into an era where there's a defined ism or, or sort of a set, a system of thinking that um, is being identified here. And this sets up a basically the rest of the 20th century, a debate between dispensationalists and covenantalists or more reform thinking fundamentalists for who's going to control the theological world of fundamentalism. These are the two largest camps. There are, of course, many other types of of, um, fundamentalists out there than just these two, but these are the largest camps, and these are the ones that amass resources enough to build their own seminaries and papers and uh, journals and publishing houses that really end up defining a lot of the conversation of fundamentalist and then later evangelical theology in the 20th century. And so it emerges out of this moment of defeat or seeming defeat of fundamentalism in the 1920s. Um, and and within the fundamentalist world, uh, the this sort of polarization into two camps, uh, theological camps. So um, so that, that's it's really interesting because I, I don't think had um, the fundamentalist modernist controversy come about in the 1920s, the history of dispensationalism would look way different. I don't even know if we call it that necessarily because it could have been called something else. But it certainly wouldn't have become this major pull in the fundamentalist um, theological world. But because of that history and because of the... Uh, separate the separation of the fundamentalist theological conversation from the broader Protestant conversation, dispensationalism becomes one of the major schools of theology in in American Protestantism at that point. And uh, we'll speak of I'll ask a question on schools or a specific school school in a second, but I'd like uh, you to briefly bring up because this is the beginning of an of a almost eternal struggle, well, at least a struggle that was potentially won in the past 25 years, between dispensationalism and covenantalism, as you call it. Elaborate exactly what covenantalism is, just briefly. Yeah, so that, that tends to be um, the more uh, traditional Reformed uh, theology that goes all the way back to Calvin um, and is developed largely in, a, in the American context. Um, Presbyterian, Presbyterianism has a strong covenantal strain to it. And the big distinction with dispensationalism is one, uh, covenantalists tend to be amillennialists. So I mentioned that's the, the tradition of eschatology that rejects a literal millennium. Uh, and so uh, uh, covenantalists tend to be uh, averse to uh, talk of the end times, or particularly sort of this this fascination with prophecy fulfillment that defines dispensationalism. Even more fundamentally, covenantalists reject dispensationalist uh, philosophy of time, or this sense of dividing up the way God acts with humanity in different phases. And covenantalists tend to emphasize a much more uh, a, a line of continuity in the way that God acts with humanity and uh, and rejects this idea that God has a special relationship with with Jews or with Israel versus with the church. And so these things bleed into debates over um, the nature of the church, uh, hermeneutics, um, the nature of, of um, the covenants and sort of what, what is God's actual relationship with humanity. Um, these are all uh, sort of different uh, uh, lines of the battle 
between these two sides. And so there is a lot of the, if you just sort of look through all the literature between these two sides, a lot of it does hinge on um, or, or talk about eschatology, but I would say not even the majority of it does. I'd say that's probably the biggest, that's a plurality maybe, but so much of it is around sort of basic questions about God's relationship to humanity and then the implications of that for all areas of religious life. And so while both sides in this debate are very conservative when it comes to questions of biblical inerrancy um, or how they deal with biblical higher criticism or Darwinism and, or other things, Um there is a lot still to debate uh, between them and enough to polarize the fundamentalist world and really spur a lot of institution building um, a- as well as uh, debate uh, within the community. Yeah, a good a good kind of example of a dispensational fundament, uh, reformed alliance, covenantal alliance, was the publication of The Genesis Flood by Morris and Whitcomb, right? Out of Grace Seminary, published by Reformed Presbyterian Press, ushered by Rush Dooney. Um so school in the 19 uh, early 20th century Dallas Theological Seminary is founded what what role does this school play in now a self-consciously identifying dispensationalist movement yeah so Lewis Berry Schaefer is the uh, Schaefer is the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary Schaefer was someone who was affiliated with Moody uh, until Moody died and and ended up becoming uh, part of the the broader fundamentalist world. Uh, Chafer founds Dallas Theological Seminary. It was originally called Evangelical Theological College, um, but but quickly changed its name um, in 1924 as a response to, uh, the, so this is the key 1920s again, as a response to the hyper-politicized nature of fundamentalism at that moment. Chafer had a different orientation, a different personality. He was very much uh, interested in training future uh, pastors and theologians, and less interested in winning any of the sort of culture war or denominational battles that were raging at the time. And so Dallas Seminary cultivates a very scholastic, as I call it, a very scholarly model of, of training people in the dispensationalist system. And they model this actually off of Princeton Seminary and, and other places that they they both uh, reject because of the modernist theology in those places, but also admire because of their educational prowess. And so Dallas becomes the center of a scholastic dispensationalism, a dispensationalism that's attempting to uh, basically develop academic credibility at the same level as any other theological system would in the American uh, Christian context. And Chafer sort of leads that charge. He dies in 1952. Uh, when the school is 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 uh, growing, but still not that large, and the person after him is a guy named John Walvard, who becomes a major figure in the story uh, for the, the the second half of the 20th century, who really grows Dallas Seminary into one of the largest seminaries in the country. Uh, by the time he retires in the 1980s, uh, Dallas has more than a thousand students at any given time, a massive campus in downtown Dallas, um, and and Dallas Seminary is sort of the center of this this hub of um, of scholastic dispensationalism. And the, the two other key seminaries in the country that, that sort of create a, a triangle of dispensationalist theological training are uh, Talbot Seminary, which is located in Los Angeles, right? It's actually part of Biola, Biola uh, yeah. University, which you mentioned. Um, and Louis Talbot, who was named after, was a as a president of Biola and was a major sort of popular dispensationalist writer. Uh, and the uh, the first 
dean of Talbot Seminary is Charles Feinberg, who was trained at Dallas and actually was sort of orchestrated that, that he would move from Dallas to to Talbot Seminary. And then the third pillar is Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana, which is much smaller now. That's the one that's uh, maybe less notable on, on today's uh, landscape. Um, and and there are many important people that were trained there and, and came out of there as well. And so that by the 1960s, there's this burgeoning sort of subculture of scholastic dispensationalism that is about scale and training more and more pastors, developing more and more scholarship, uh, overseeing PhDs and theses that are advancing the system, defending the system against, of course, against the liberals and the modernists, but also against the covenantalists, even within the conservative world. And this is the era, so we're talking the 1930s to the 1950s and 60s, when it, it really is a, a fascinating growth of dispensationalist credibility. And I think, you know, but if you were to just drop in in 1960 and to try to predict where exactly the broader evangelical theological conversation would go, you could make a credible case at that point that the future was very dispensationalist, that, that, that the scholars were there, the training was there, the infrastructure was there. Um, that's not how it turned out, and that's why the title is The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. But this is sort of the apex or the apotheosis of this scholastic brand that starts with Dallas uh, Seminary being founded in 1924. I'll say this, uh, um, when I think of Dallas, I don't think of PhDs. I always think they're still one of the few colleges that uses uh, THDs, right? That emphasis on uh, theological doctorate. Um, So politics also has a role here. And politics actually becomes, strangely enough, a huge dividing point between dispensationalism and what is called neo-evangelicalism, popularized by... Billy Graham and Akinye and and um, Henry, what were dispensationalists saying about politics? Because another interesting point that's kind of implicit in our conversation is: okay, a seminary in Dallas is founded. This is right originally kind of Midwestern movement. Now it's gone south, particularly in segregationist Texas. What what is dispensationalist politics, and how does that cause conflict with kind of socially aware neo evangelicalism? Right. Well, one one thing to, to really make clear is that just because dispensationalists continue to teach the the same insight that Darby had that the church is otherworldly or should not be bound up, that did not mean it was apolitical. It did mean that dispensationalists tended to engage politics in a in a different way. There was not a robust theology of cultural engagement or theology of, of politics. And what this ended up meaning in practice was often that dispensationalists um, were fine with the status quo and found disrupting the status quo as potentially threatening to their their bigger interest, which was missions. So that often meant a small C conservatism, at least at this point, uh, for whatever the arrangement was in society. And part of the um, part of the justification of this had to do with their theology around. Um, the kingdom of God. And so for most Christian, for most Protestants, at least, uh, activism in, in society has often been framed as contributing to the kingdom of God, bringing about the order that 
Jesus taught about in the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and so there had to be some sense for Christians who argue that, that they can help usher in the kingdom of God, or that the kingdom of God is already here and they're participating in it. Dispensationalists rejected that theology, and because of the way they read the Bible and they understand Israel and the church, they, they see the kingdom of God as entirely in the future and entirely set up by Jesus when he returns, not something that Christians should do. In fact, the confusion for liberals, in their view, was that they would confuse their own activities as as activities of the kingdom of God. And this was like the height of arrogance uh, for a Christian to think they could do what was reserved for God. And this plays into the broader uh, division between sort of social gospel uh, Christians who really saw their activism and their reforms as ushering in the kingdom of God, and that being tied with a modernist liberal theology as well. And so dispensations were the entire sort of other reaction to that, which is rejecting reform movements, rejecting activism, um, and also rejecting the idea that the kingdom of God was present at all. That seemed to be somehow a slippery slope to a more liberal Protestantism. And so in come the neo-evangelicals, or these sort of reforming fundamentalists, these fundamentalists who are looking to get out of the entirely separatistic religion that they grew up in. And one of the key doctrines that they end up fixating on is this kingdom of God doctrine. And uh, if you look at someone like Carl Henry, uh, who founded, who was the first editor of Christianity Today, among other things, if you look at theologians like George Eldon Ladd, which was a, he was a major New Testament scholar at Fuller Seminary, which became the new event, neo-evangelical center of thought. Um, one of the things they harped on again and again was getting rid of this, what they called kingdom then theology, this theology where the kingdom was only in the future. And Ladd was famous for coining uh, this, this idea of the kingdom being already, but not yet. So this sense that it's somehow present, but it's also not totally uh, fulfilled. And this was sort of a centrist um, position uh, between um, more liberal social gospel people and dispensationalists. And and that, that was how they understood what they were doing. And so one of the key moves that new evangelicalism makes is to uh, try to carve out a sense that evangelicals can engage with culture in this in the, in the way that they want to, because the kingdom is somehow already here and, and Christians can participate in it. Dispensationalists entirely reject that that teaching, and uh, because of the the um, the politics of the era, I go into the world that anti-communism and and um, and anti-Semitism and other things uh, develop in this sort of period of the 1930s through the 1950s, dispensationalists tend to start wedding their understanding of the kingdom and their understanding of uh, of these things to a, a, a conservatism, a, a capital C conservatism, you could say, a movement conservatism. That means that they tend to look very skeptically at, they did at the New Deal, at um, at communism uh, for sure, um, at the at the uh, Great Society projects in the 1960s, at the civil rights movement, um, and other things. And so these all seem like disruptions of the status quo, which they are. But they, they seem like disruptions of the status quo that are going to undermine what dispensationalists really care about, which is missions. And neo evangelicals, on the other hand, are try to engage with these things uh, because of their their theology. And, uh, and that's a complicated side of the story as well. But th- this is an interesting way where the theology lines up interesting in interesting ways with the politics that don't necessarily lead to an equation where if you believe this, then this you'll, you'll do this, um, but do have tendencies that end up um, meaning that when we get to uh, a later eras in the late 20th century, um, these, these categories still have relevance, sort of neo-evangelical or dispensationalist still have relevance for how Christians are engaging politics. 
And another uh, momentous political development in the mid-20th century globally was the formation of the State of Israel. And in the 1960s and 70s, a new movement appears, which seems to be really focused on the actual existing political state of Israel, which is what you call pop dispensationalism. So explain the kind of major figures in texts of pop dispensationalism and how they differed from that more kind of rigid scholasticism of Dallas and elsewhere. Yeah, so the pop dispensationalists um, are, are the big focus of the last third of the book. And these are the many of them are trained at places like Dallas Seminary, many of the, the writers and leaders, but they have a much broader audience in mind than just other conservative theologians and pastors. Uh, they, they have a, at least a national, if not a global audience in mind. And so um, the key figure here that, that starts it off is Hal Lindsey, who was trained at Dallas Seminary in the late 50s, early 60s, becomes a campus crusade minister at UCLA during the 60s. So sort of the height of, a, of all the, the radicalism and anti-war protesting and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, develops a way of talking to students about the end times, about sort of the whole dispensationalist system that, uh, that, that really resonates. And so he ends up turning his, his teaching notes into a book with a, with a uh, ghostwriter named Carol Carlson uh, to, actually, actually she's not a ghostwriter, she's also credited, but she ghostwrites uh, his later books um, as well, but uh, called The Late Great Planet Earth. And this, is a, this comes out in 1970. It's the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s. Uh, it sells about 10 million copies in the decade, and it's sold over 30 million uh, today. And so this is a book that really presents the dispensationalist eschatology. So doesn't really get into biblical hermeneutics or the covenants or any of that stuff, just presents the end time scenario and links it up to modern day events happening in the Middle East in particular, but also the Cold War. And Lindsay's uh, a master at, at sort of communicate, sort of entertaining uh, communication. So he calls um, the Antichrist the future Fuhrer to reference, you know, Hitler. He calls the Rapture the ultimate trip uh, to try to sort of jump on the, the lingo of, of the youth culture at the time. And it, it really hits with uh, with a lot of people, not just young people, but uh, all types of Americans by the book. And this kicks off um, what I call pop dispensationalism in the sense that, of course, there were popularizers before Hal Lindsey, people who, uh, when we talked about Darby had popularizers, but this creates a massive economic uh, gravity well, a, a place where um, literally tens of millions of books are being sold, attracting hundreds of authors um, and actually shaping culture and politics as well. And so how Lindsay publishes a number of books in the 70s and 80s, all of them sell very well. Lindsay becomes a major figure in uh conservative media. He has his own television show, uh, ultimately his own television channel. Um, he's all over the place in, in every type of media he can be. Um, he ends up writing a book in 1980 called um, 1980, The Path to Armageddon, where he's endorsing Ronald Reagan and basically saying Reaganite foreign policy is what we need um, in order to basically be good, a good Christian nation. And so uh, Lindsay's a, a, one of many figures. Others include Tim LaHaye, who um, was, was a help, helped found the Christian right in the 1970s, ended up co-authoring the Left Behind novels in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, who really, uh, they, they have training 
uh, from a seminary, but their goal is to go popular, is to really try to appeal to the masses with the dispensationalist teachings. Uh, one of the key things I, I track is how the popularization really thins down what it means to be a dispensationalist or what it means to uh, hold the dispensationalist beliefs, really down to the eschatology, down to um, what's going to happen next in sort of the prophetic timeline, and then what are the political, social implications of that for people. And they, they tend to be conservative implications. Both LaHaye and Lindsay are arch conservatives. And other people who um, have this same background, people like Jerry Falwell, who founds the Moral Majority in 1979. He's another person who grew up a dispensationalist and um, and really uh, when he went became a, a household name, uh, continued to talk uh, from a dispensationalist perspective. So one, one question that, that does come up is, I thought these people were otherworldly. I thought they weren't going to be interested in politics. And uh, there's a lot of ways to try to square that. Um, the way I try to is try to show how what someone like Jerry Falwell was thinking uh, was not that he changed his mind necessarily on basic theological principles. So in the 1960s, Falwell, who's in Virginia, he's a Southerner, uh, he basically preaches against the civil rights movement. And he has a an infamous uh, sermon called Ministers and Marchers, where he says basically ministers should not be found on the march in the marches for civil rights. It has a confusion of of roles. And that, that feels very dispensationalist. It feels like he's saying uh, ministers should be focused only on otherworldly things, things like missions and marchers, you know, that's, that's a whole different uh, world. Well, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years and Falwell is calling for pastors to be engaged in anti-abortion uh, activism, uh, voting Republican, all these types of things. And the way that Falwell justifies it to himself. So if you do a close reading of how Falwell is articulating what he's doing, He's claiming that um, he has the same priorities. He's still thinking about missions and sort of the broader uh, uh, calling of the church to be otherworldly, but that there's this threat that has appeared in the intervening time that threatens the ability of the church to do that. And that is the threat of secular humanism, of progressivism. And so Christians are called to resist that in order that the church can continue to fulfill its mission. And by the by the early 1980s, he repeatedly defines that mission as global evangelization and supporting Israel. And to me, that you know, this is very clearly a dispensationalist uh, priority list uh, for what, what, should, what should be happening. But this is how people like Falwell and LaHaye articulate how they used to be apolitical or anti- Engage, the church not engaging directly in politics to being deeply political. And you still get those same types of, of rationales and arguments, particularly around evangelization and Israel uh, today. Um, it's not the dominant way that people on the Christian right articulate um, their views today because there's a lot of change since the 1980s, but it remains uh, a, a, a rhetoric or a pattern of justification that can be found in uh, in the dispensationalist, the pop dispensationalist uh, tradition. So that's one of the major legacies I see for pop dispensationalism is in this political uh, mobilization of rank and file Christians um, to basically, it's like a rear guard action to try to d defend the church against this a newly aggressive state. And then the other area is in this consumerism or the, this this sort of commercial pop dispensationalism that has deeply, deeply shaped evangelical popular culture. So anyone who grew up in that culture, even people who didn't, um, in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, it's, it's hard 
uh, to separate the dispensationalism from the rest of that culture. It's so deeply infused the Christian contemporary music scene, the megachurch scene, um, the movie, novel, um, TV scene that um, that they became a major part of of, um, of evangelical culture. Televangelists, many of them are dispensationalists as well. And so um, I wanted to sort of track how um, this popularized version really had these two major legacies at the very same time that the scholarly version, the scholastic version, really fell on hard times and um, and has, is basically not nearly as functional now as it was um, uh, back in the 1950s and 60s. But it, it was an interesting contrast to sort of the popular legacy and then the scholastic legacy of dispensationalism. And I thought your discussion on the popular legacy was important because I grew up Assemblies of God and Pentecostalism, as you indicate a couple times throughout the book, is a very ambivalent relationship with dispensationalism. And yet growing up, dispensationalism in its popular variety was so prevalent, was so prevalent in, in our denomination, in our church, uh, but... But and as I got older, I, I I started you know you 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 occasionally when you go to Christian bookstores, uh, you you see f- folks like you know Ryrie and uh, and folks like that, and you read and you're thinking or Geisler, I've never heard of any of this stuff, right about you know the dualisms and these uh, elaborate kind of eschatologies and these uh, weird ethical implications about dispensation, like the various dispensations too, like do we even accept. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And, and so, and so, it was. You know, the pop version helped because for me, I saw before uh, reading this book, really not such a definable difference. I, I merely thought of it as a spectrum. When you really indicate it, really is two very distinct expressions of this theological system. And so, as a penultimate question, we'll go into the scholastic just total decline. I mean, uh, uh, it. The last 30, 40 years has been pretty bad for dispensationalism as an intellectual movement. Uh, what were the intra-evangelical debates truly? That that really was what killed it. What, what, what were the critiques that dispensationalists couldn't answer in the past 40 years that led to its weakening? Yeah. Yeah. And and I like how you say that. It's more than a spectrum. There are definitely two camps here or two two stories to be told. There was, of course, a lot of overlap. So there's a lot. um, One of the one of the failures of the scholastic movements, at least how I tell it, is that a number of them tried to go pop dispensationalist. They saw where the the trends were going. I mean, there was just unbelievable market for this. And uh, and so people like John Walford, who I mentioned was was leading Dallas Seminary. In 1974, he publishes a book called um, Oil, Armageddon and the Middle East. And this is a popularized, I mean, it, it very much, you know, hitting the post-1973 Arab-Israeli war moment, trying to give these answers to what's going to happen in the European Union and all these types of things. And um, and it sells well, but it doesn't sell anywhere close to what Hal Lindsey's book sells. And uh, Charles Ryrie does the same thing in the late 70s. He has a book about um, uh, a countdown is in the title. I don't remember the title, but uh, something that was very much on the the sort of trying to read the, the newest headlines. Um, when the Iraq war emerged, you know, comes on the scene in the ni- in 1990, there's a number of scholars um, who try to, you know, capitalize on that. Um, and they also, uh, Walvert's book is re-released at that point, updated to account for Saddam Hussein. And, and this is this is the first Iraq war. 
Yes, that's right. So yes, in 1990, yes. 1991, um, Walvert is dead by the time of the second Iraq war, but the, the book is re-released again in 2003 um, because there, there, you know, there are people to, um, that will buy that as well. So, and, and, and Daniel, just briefly, uh, one of the distinctions also, it seemed, is that pop dispensationalism performs a real, uh, how, do, how do we say this, uh, it, it indulges in date setting, which from the earliest moments, dispensationalism rejects, correct? That's right. So a a good scholastic dispensationalist rejects date setting because the, um, the system implies that, that, that this will happen at any moment. And actually it's key that it could be any moment that there's not a set date, um, for, uh, the rapture to happen. Of course, the, the, the popular history of dispensationalism has many people date setting. Um, many televangelists, um, would, would set actual, you know, days or um, others would set windows of dates. There was the famous, uh, I talk about a bit, uh, 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988, you know, type thing. And then, of course, there was 89 reasons why it would happen in 1989. Um, Much of this is is outside of the purview of the scholastic uh, uh, gatekeepers. Uh, So some of these people have training at a seminary like Dallas. Many don't. Um, but none of them ha- were sanctioned uh, by by the seminary professors uh, to do this, and and to the best of their ability, they did not. So someone like Walver did not date set, though they would get they, they would flirt with it. They would talk about time is short or things seem like they're coming to a climax. And you know, for a reader who's not you know super careful, that feels like wow, this is going to happen uh, very soon, and it creates some of that excitement and and um, and appeal of of the whole system is that it seems to be giving you a window into what's going to happen next. But yes, the 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 date setting that really uh, was a hit on the credibility of dispensationalism, but also generated a lot of the interest or activity was often done by the popularizers who did not have the same training or background um, that the scholastics did. Um, another thing that the that the scholastics, so, so I've mentioned they, they sort of tried to go pop, that didn't work really well. Um, another thing that that developed were a number of uh, critiques, technical critiques about the theology, and um, and and even dissatisfaction with the results of the theology within the evangelical world. So I mentioned George Eldon Ladd uh, before. He was the Fuller Seminary professor who had proposed this already not yet kingdom theology. Ladd spends the first half of his career really critiquing dispensationalism. His first three books are all sort of pushing against the dispensationalist way of thinking about um, the end times and Bible reading. And that's just an indication of how dominant that was in the 1940s and 50s, that someone like Ladd would have to spend the first part of his career just responding to that. But once Ladd does those things, he moves on to a more um, positive portrayal or positive presentation of a um, what would is known in the theological world as a historic premillennial presentation. So this is a type of premillennialism that isn't dispensationalist. It's much more covenantalist in its undergirding theology. And this becomes um, the major consensus view among evangelical scholars in the 80s, 90s, and even you could even say today, there's sort of a broad consensus of historic premillennial and amillennial scholars. And if you went to any seminary in the evangelical world today, from Fuller to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary to Trinity Seminary, uh, they would all largely hold this view, and they would have very few dispensationalists on their faculty. And uh, this comes about through uh, Ladd and the people around him really developing what's seen by evangelicals as a superior 
um, hermeneutical system for reading the Bible and a superior engagement with the broader uh, theological landscape at the time. So dispensationalists tended to not engage with any other scholars. So um, you can think about all the major changes in Protestant theology in the 20th century. And dispensationalists basically have nothing to say about any of them except negative sort of denunciatory um, screeds. And Ladd and his followers really want to engage. And, and uh, they, they're still quite conservative in their theology and their commitments, but they do want to have a dialogue. And that comes out of that neo-evangelical drive. And so um, in some ways, that is just that, that that's the type of engagement that grows in these seminaries and displaces dispensationalists. Um, and then there are a number of particular controversies that I follow in the 80s and 90s that get us to a point by the year 2000 that dispensationalism as a scholastic tradition is really just on its heels. And uh, one of them is the rise of Reconstructionism, which is a f- sort of an arch conservative rival post-millennial school. So, um, you know, a, a, maybe a throwback to the 19th century in some ways, but also where a lot of the uh, conversation today around Christian nationalism, most of the pe- most of the pastors and theologians that are supporting Christian nationalism today are actually post-millennialist. And they have very little nice to say about dispensationalists because they see that otherworldly aspect as really a detriment to the Christian nationalist project. And so this is a story that's very recent, but it has its roots in the 70s and 80s. People like Rush Dooney um, and others, Gary North and and these other sort of fringe... Arch, yeah, yeah, Bonson, arch conservative uh, Presbyterian post-millennialist types, but they basically spend the '80s bashing dispensationalism and and writing track after track, saying like this is this is sort of a an errant theology. So that's one thing that's happening. Um, another is this interesting uh, little debate within the sort of dispensationalist world around um, a, a totally different part of theology, which is um, uh, soteriology, so like the theology of how to be saved. And there's this uh, controversy called the Lordship Salvation controversy which gets very um, in the weeds on sort of how different conservative evangelicals are thinking about what it means to be saved. But the upshot is that John MacArthur, who was trained at Talbot Seminary, and you mentioned him already, a a sort of major figure in conservative evangelicalism today um, out in California. He is a dispensationalist in his eschatology, but he ends up rejecting the way that dispensationalists have traditionally talked about being saved. Uh, What does it mean to be born again? And for dispensationalists, that's a very, uh, it's, they're very much in what's called the free grace tradition. And so the, the idea is that to be saved basically means you think a thought of Jesus, I believe in you, or something like that, and then you're saved. And MacArthur in the 80s looked at the televangelist scandals and other things and said, this can't be the case. These televangelists aren't Christian. They can't be, because if Christians can do what they did, then it doesn't really mean much to be a Christian. And so he came up with, or he didn't come up with, but he channeled a much more reformed understanding that you don't just have to acknowledge Jesus as your Savior, you have to uh, submit your will to him as your Lord. And so this was called the Lordship Salvation Controversy because it was a debate over, do you need to submit your will to Jesus to be saved? For dispensationalists, this felt like a uh, a sort of uh, works-based way to be saved. And so they rejected that. And this was a very bitter debate that was also very insular in the 80s and 90s, but ended up... Uh, creating a condition where a lot of dispensationalists actually switch sides. Like a lot of people read these debates and sided with the Lordship people and became much more reformed in their theology. And so I tracked some of the scholars who actually were trained at Dallas, but then became 
uh, uh, reformed in their theology after that. And this happened for a number of people, just sort of a brain drain over to the reform side, the covenantalist side from the dispensationalist side. And then finally, the third sort of thing that happened at this time is that within dispensationalism itself, there was a, a, a self-critique that ended up being called progressive dispensationalism. And the progressive is not about politics, but it's about the way that the progressives understood the development between the dispensations within the theological system. And this actually started at Dallas Seminary. So it was younger scholars at Dallas Seminary who were looking out at some of the critiques of dispensationalism, agreeing with them. They were the first people to really historicize the movement. And so to actually identify the different generations going back to Darby. Uh, this was not really work that had been done before the 80s. Um, dispensationalists did not tend to write their own histories. They tended to reject the idea that they were, they, they actually were distinct. They thought they were just um, being good, uh, you know, good, plain, commonsensical Christians. So these progressive dispensationalists develop their own sort of historical awareness and develop a, a new critique of the system. They don't leave the system. They're called progressive dispensationalists, but they give a lot of theological territory to the covenantalists. So that today, um, many of the leading lights of progressive dispensationalism hang out with covenantalist theologians much more than they do conservative dispensationalist uh, theologians. And so these things all happen in the 80s and 90s. And really, by the year 2000, um, there's just not a lot of energy left in the scholastic project. And then if we fast forward to today, um, there are some pockets of dispensationalist scholars, largely at independent fundamentalist seminaries that still write uh, and, and produce scholarship. But in terms of the broader evangelical theological conversation, you're not going to find many dispens card-carrying dispensationalists under the age of 60, 65 at this point, uh, because everyone trained uh, younger than that has been trained in these these other uh, sort of historical premillennialist uh, schools that basically reject the, the key tenets of dispensationalism. And that's where we really are at today. I don't ever want to say anything is dead, so it's not called the, you know, the death of dispensationalism. Um, you, you never know what will happen in the future. But in terms of it, it, relative to where it was 50 years ago, it's quite a striking collapse in its scholarly credibility. You make a great point about those scholars who hang out with other kind of reform types. The only Dallas professor that I could name off the top of my head is Daryl Bach. Right. I'm no I'm no evangelical, but even but the fact that he has essentially established a kind of presence outside of that. And he was a progressive dispensationalist. He wrote, he edited the book. Yeah, he, so, was, he was one of the original ones. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. one of the original ones. And the fact that he not only stayed at the seminary, but became kind of its biggest voice is, I mean, obviously indicates that the the classical scholastic dispensationalism, I mean, it, it even in a sense, maybe it's still taught at Dallas, but it lost the, the kind of, even public relations Dallas is known. No right. longer in that in that uh, view. So and, and it's, it's, yeah. it's divided. So it's interesting too because it's divided by discipline as well. So um, someone like Bach is a New Testament scholar. New basically um, the the progressive uh, movement came out a lot of out of biblical studies scholars who were having a harder time applying dispensationalist theology to their studies than were the systematic theologians. And so you do see, even at Dallas now, some of the systematic theologians continue to teach a more classical or traditional understanding of dispensationalism, whereas most of the biblical studies people are progressive dispensationalists. And it's an interesting divide that you actually see across the country, um, which is an indicator to me that... Um, 
that there was something happening in biblical studies, the other methods that were being, you know, developed in these in these decades, that was even further undermining the credibility of dispensationalism and making a New Testament scholar. Uh, I mean, George Eldon Ladd was also a New Testament scholar, so he saw these things from that methodology as well. But that there was something in the water in the 20th century leading to a very difficult uh, application of dispensationalist theology on uh, biblical studies methodology as well. Yeah, well, Daniel, thank you so much for this great overview of the rise and fall of dispensationalism, which I think uh, is uh, a, just the, 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 a phenomenal book and gives such a great sense of this convoluted but so important movement, so essential to the thought world of the American Republic as it exists today, as you kind of talk about the conclusion about QAnon and the Trump prophecies, Trumpocalypse, things like this. I actually think that's a David Frum book. Um, so so before we go, I just want to ask what future projects do you have uh, on the horizon? Anything more in kind of evangelical intellectual history, Christian right, Zionism, that kind of thing? Yes. Um, I'm working on two different things right now. One is, I, I, I'm i not sure if it'll turn into a book or just an article, but I am interested in what you might, what you might call the reverse side of, of the story of dispensationalism, which is the story of post-millennialism in, in American evangelicalism. And I'm particularly thinking of sort of the dominionist types that are out there today, the seven mountain dominionism, all that kind of stuff, which have interesting historical lineages that go all the way back to the colonial era and Jonathan Edwards and uh, other post-millennialists. So that's one thing I'm thinking about is is what would it look like to look at a different eschatological system and how it's shaped American religion um, and the other and the one that I'm I'm um, uh, working on actively right now is a, a history of what I'm calling evangelical spirituality but looking at um, a particular lineage of uh, writers and uh, pastors that go all the way back to the Keswick movement, the higher life movement, and the holiness movement in the 19th century, and then f- come all the way up to the 21st century with uh, movements like the spiritual formation movement and people like Dallas Willard, who are really big in the evangelical world, and people like Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life in the uh, uh, was that the 90s and and has um, you know sold. Uh, that's the best-selling book for Zondervan, by the way, is Purpose Driven Life. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm interested in that tradition um, and understanding how to talk about that. I, I think it's an interesting set of characters that are based on the historiographical categories and methods we're using right now. It's a little harder to, to talk about, but I'm interested in uh, in telling that story. So yes, I'm, I'm hanging out in the same sort of evangelicalism in the 19th and 20th century, uh, 21st century, uh, here for a while. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's an endlessly fascinating field to, to study, particularly now. I mean, there's just so much, acti- so much scholarly activity. And then of course the journalists are all interested in this uh, as well oh, yeah. <laughs> right now, right now, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, <clears throat> concerning post-millennialism, you need to talk to, or at least read uh, new books, network contributor and interviewer Crawford Gribben, who, uh, is a I mean, his, his work is uh, super influential and super important, and uh, he actually was the person who helped me get on New Book Network. So uh, uh, anywho, both of those projects sound extremely exciting. The evangelical spirituality one really sounds exciting. I went to USC, um, and in the free book section, a lot of those books were Dallas Willard's books because you'd see in the little in the inscription. So I know that, and, and he, he's my father's favorite Christian writer, so like I, I'm that that is such an important part of my kind of uh, – uh, adolescent development in Christianity. So both very exciting. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast today to talk about your book, Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. It's been a pleasure.
Great. Well, you've been listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I've been your host, Jackson T. Reinhardt, and we've been talking about the rise and fall of dispensationalism, how the evangelical battle over the end times shaped a nation by Daniel G. Hummel, published by William B. Erdman's 2023. Thank you so much for listening.